You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. The Rewilding Earth Podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia and Catula, the Whedon Foundation, and listeners like you. If you love the work Rewilding is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast while you're there. Nancy Stranahan serves as the director of the Ark of Appalachia Preserve System and was one of the nonprofit's founders in 1995. In the span of directing the organization over the last 20-plus years, Nancy has cultivated a vigorous citizen advocacy network in Ohio. The Ark has saved and preserved over 7,000 acres of natural areas in Appalachian, Ohio, representing 21 preserve regions and over 100 separate real estate negotiations and fundraising campaigns. The Ark's headquarters, the 2,500-acre Highlands Nature Sanctuary, is the Ark's largest and oldest preserve region and is the hub of the Ark's primary visitor services, offering over 16 miles of public hiking trails, overnight lodges, and an interpretive museum. A few of the many rare and common signature species protected within the Ark suite of nature preserves are Hinslow sparrows, cerulean warblers, golden star lilies, northern long-eared bats, and timber rattlesnakes. Under Nancy's guidance, the Ark has also been instrumental in saving several 2,000-year-old Native American earthwork complexes. Previously in her career, Nancy served as chief naturalist for Ohio State Parks. Nancy, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Rewilding Earth Podcast. You are welcome. So I wanted to start out. I am so excited. There are many things I'm excited about today. One is I'm in Indiana. I'm a real weird rewilder who happens to be in Indiana. I may be the one of the only ones. And, uh, and we don't get to talk a lot about the Midwest, much at all. Uh, upper Midwest, we had uh, a podcast about wolves and the Boundary Waters and Wisconsin and places. Um, but, you know, the, the lower mid-Midwest, we never get to talk about. So this is wonderful to be able to talk to you about Ohio, arcofappalachia.org, and the work that you're doing. And uh, my son will want to listen to this podcast too, because he'll be planning our trips uh, this summer based on this. Can you tell us a little bit about Ark of Appalachia and the work that you do? Yes, certainly. And I have to start off by saying I can't agree with you more. This is a thrill to talk to basically a nationwide audience, because you're right, we don't think of Ohio or Indiana or even northern Kentucky or northern West Virginia as places where, wow, this is the place we want to put our money. This is the place we want to save vast acreages of wildlands. And so some of the good conservation work that's happening in the Midwest gets lost. And um, I'm happy to retrieve that today and say, hey, it's up there on it's up there in the top top list, you know, of, of things, of places that need, need preservation. Um, the Ark of Appalachia has been around for 23 years, um, and it really got founded in um, not with this grand master plan that it was going to be a large preserve system, which it is fairly large today. Uh, we have um, 23 sites, close to 7,000 acres, um, with another 1,000 poised to be added to that. So it's a busy place. Um, we're doing a lot of good work. We mostly work in Southern Ohio um, in the Appalachian foothills, which kind of, for people who don't know Ohio, it's kind of taking in like the lower third of the state uh, running, running from west to east in that lower Southern Ohio is where most of our Appalachian hills are. 
And that's, of course, where the forest is, and that's where we do most of our work. And a lot of people think, wow, why Ohio? You know, we've got, uh, we're, we, we have the, the questionable um, honor of being the most polluted state in the nation of the 50 states. Um, we have very high uh, population density. We have a lot of agricultural land. Um, we have a lot of industrial land, and we have lots of big metropolises. So it's not a place you would think of. And yet, like every other state in the union, that is an illusion. There is no state that isn't worth doing tremendous wildlands preservation in. And it's just a matter of knowing that state, knowing what the resources are, knowing what's left, and then, of course, leveraging the funds and the citizen support to get those places set aside. So Ohio has its shiny lights just like everyone else. And I get to talk about those. So I'm pretty excited. You were just signing a contract before we talked. You were a little bit late because of some very important work you were doing. Uh, so, I mean, you're, you guys are really in motion and, and things are really happening. Is there any way you can talk about that or any of the recent uh, land acquisitions that you guys have done? Uh, we are a busy place. Um, I think the reason we have so much magic in our organization is that we're really flexible and we don't follow really strict um, master plans. Now we have our master plans and we have our list of priority areas, but we look at those as rules to be broken. So when an opportunity comes by, which are happening all the time anymore, um, and if it's a worthy project, then our gears start moving uh, on, you know, how can we raise the funds to buy it? Or in some cases, accept a donation. Um, I think in the last, year, one of the more interesting places we started to move into is the Hocking Hills region, which is not one that we originally um, worked in. Our home county is Highland County, and our very first preserve uh, region is called um, the Highlands Nature Sanctuary, which is now a 3,000-acre preserve that goes along the Rocky Fork Gorge, which runs right down the middle of it. And that Rocky Fork Gorge is limestone, um, one of those vertical-sided box canyons, but in Ohio, those aren't just rocks. Those are ferns and wildflowers because that's what we grow here. So just an incredibly beautiful place. Um, as you move east across Ohio, and that, let me back up a little bit. Highlands Nature Sanctuary would be, I have to kind of put people in perspective of the big cities. Um, it would be, if you do a line from Columbus to Cincinnati and then drop south about two hours drive, that's that's where it is. So it's in the southwest quadrant of the state. Um, but we've been moving farther, further and further east um, as our years have transpired. And last year we did pick up two projects in Hocking Hills, which is sandstone and shale country, a lot of forest cover deep in the foothills of the Appalachians, uh, very dissected hill country with lots of creeks and, and deep hollows and ravines and lots of hemlock forests. So it is um, definitely has maybe more of an Appalachian feel than um, some of our other areas. And that's been really exciting to us because Hocking Hills region is really one of the more beautiful places in the Midwest. Um, incredible rock formations, beautiful ferns uh, growing off those rocks, and of course, the usual biodiversity wildflowers that you would find in an area with this much rainfall um, and fairly mild winter temperatures. So it's a beautiful place. Um, I think most people probably have heard of the Hiking Hills region of Ohio, but if not, they need to Google it. It's a big deal. And it's something that my son and I have been wanting to check it out because um, we heard a rumor, and I don't know if this is true, but that there could be possibly black bear or have recently been black bear in that area? 
Yes, and not just in that area. Even out here in the Highlands Nature Sanctuary for the West, um, we um, have recordings of black bear in our in the sanctuary. Um, black bear are always moving in, and my understanding is um, they are not well established in terms of breeding. Although I think there have been some that have been um, documented, but for the most part, they keep moving in, trying to find their way in here. So, so really, um, yeah, they are corridor. here, but. For sure, like it's an active corridor. Yes, coming wow. in, I coming in from I think West Virginia and probably um, even um, probably Pennsylvania. So it's it's a tough place for them to stay, <laughs> but um, the the adventures and males keep moving in, and we definitely have seen them. The other exciting thing for us is when we started this preserve system, um, we didn't have bobcats, and now there's hardly a preserve that doesn't have them. So that's been really fun. Um, last year um, was the first time we saw otter in the Rocky Fork Creek. Um, so oh, wow. they're back. Um, and it, I have a lot of sad stories to tell if I wanted to, um, but these are the ones that aren't so sad. You know, the wildlife are so opportunistic, just like people are. And um, even fun things like um, Cooper's hawks and Sharpshin hawks, 20 some years ago, yeah, you, you would like write home if you saw one, and now they're, you know, they're very, very populous in our state thanks to all the bird feeders. You know, they're doing fine. So we have been seeing some of the more charismatic animals coming back to Ohio. Um, there was a time when we didn't even have white-tailed deer anymore. They were pretty much extirpated from the state. We was a time we didn't have wild turkey anymore. So um, wow. having these um, animals come back and and repopulate our area has just been a wonderful thing to watch. So it's just rewilding in motion, in action. And I love that you have that history that you really can tell the difference between then and now. And I also want to hark back to the idea of what people think about different states. And when I was living in Albuquerque, I was hiking in the Gila wilderness and going on nine-day river trips with Dave and Nancy Dave Foreman, <laughs> uh, and being out in some really some of the biggest and wildest places in the lower 48. Coming back home, I had to check to see, because before I left Indiana, I, I really didn't know as much as when I had worked with Dave uh, pretty much for all of the 90s. And I had to check to see if we had any wilderness. I didn't think we did. And we ended up having one, Charles C. Deem Wilderness Area. It's like 5,000 acres. And, and, you know, compared to what I was used to, I, was, I really had a chip on my shoulder when I came back to the Midwest. And I think a lot of people have <laughs> that kind of idea where if you're going to talk about rewilding or just generally wilderness and wildland stuff and biodiversity, we are the flyover states for sure. But what's going on here in the Midwest with old growth forest network and the kind of work that groups like yours are do is doing is super, super important. And I love that you have that sense of history and you're watching this happen. How, how do you guys choose? I guess you don't sometimes get to choose, but on your master plan where you're like, wow, this would be really great if we got this or this could link up to that. What are those kinds of discussions like in your organization? It is complex. We actually have them all written out. Like, what are we looking for? And it's about 30 different things. What we probably look for the most is is how much scale uh, what what is the potential scale of the project if we see an isolated parcel of land it even if it's beautiful um, and all around it is developed uh, we're not going to be very excited doesn't mean we wouldn't do it but probably wouldn't 
Um, and if it was like the most beautiful hunk of old growth forest you've ever seen, then maybe we would, but we would be probably less excited about it. We would rather see, um, for instance, we've bought quite a bit of land tucked into a state forest. Well, that's perfect for us because then the whole boundaries are protected by forest land. And even though our state forests do, um, do of course, do timber harvesting, uh, they are doing it on a much uh, less frequent scale than private lands. And so having a nature preserve surrounded by state forests, that's just ideal. Um, and we feel like it's a good, a good mosaic. You know, you've got an area that that we will never cut, surrounded by lands that are being cut, and then at least that is going to be adding to the biodiversity. And I want to say a word about where we live for the moment, because one of the problems with thinking in terms of states like Indiana, Ohio, is those boundaries are completely artificial. Mm -hmm. And if you think about those boundaries, it's, I, I think it, it, it's, it's a disservice to, to rational thought. You know, when I look at Southern Ohio, and I look at its history, and I look at its biodiversity, <clears throat> that area is completely contiguous in terms of topography and physiography to West Virginia and northeastern Kentucky. And if you look at that whole region and say, should we be saving land here? Oh, absolutely should be mm. saving land here. In fact, a lot of, what a lot of people don't realize is that the eastern forest is covering the eastern third of our of our nation is not the same everywhere you go and there is an area just west of the Appalachian Mountains running from the Smoky Mountains up into Ohio and into into a little bit into Pennsylvania and then stopping and in that in that area is where we get fairly high rainfall and incredibly uh, fast rates of growth for the forest um, and protection from hurricanes so there is no reason here why a forest left alone won't won't be producing trees 450 years old with certain species that are able to to reach those heights and girths and age, um, you know, like white oaks, for instance, that are very long lived, or um, pignut hickories, you know, things that 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 really can put some some years on without falling over. And our forest can reach that here because we don't get the storms. That area, of course, is the same area that got hit the hardest with timber cutting. Um, by the time our immigration patterns from Europe, you know, came over the mountains and hit this area of Ohio, and of course, our area of northern eastern Kentucky, they were ready. <laughs> they were ready and they cut hard and they cut quick and they cut all at once, whereas with a little less of a clear-cut pattern in the northeast and along the coast and so we got hit the hardest and because of that there is this sort of attitude of like well what's the point what's the point of working here it's already ruined it's already gone it's already wasted but as an easterner who visits the west I come back home and I don't have the vast wildlands I don't have the vast ranches um, I don't have mountaintops but I'll tell you what we have here and it is in my face every day, incredibly high biodiversity. Now, you can go to a place like California, and you'll get a lot of biodiversity in the state, but you won't get as much biodiversity in any particular spot where you're standing. <laughs> in other mm. words, there's so many little ecosystems there. You add them all up, and it's just dizzying. 
um, we have basically one big ecosystem um, rented in this, this central forest. I like to call it the mother forest, um, or you can call it the mixed mesophytic forest that's running west of the Appalachians. It's all one ecosystem. So you're not going to get as much mm, endemic biodiversity per acre um, as you might in California, but you will get um, tremendous biodiversity in the forest that you're standing in. Does that make sense? Yeah, because I can I can picture it, and I feel like a lot of people. I mean, just the visitor stats to places like Hawking Hills are 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 insane. I sometimes oh, just feel like off the charts. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I worry about loving it to death. There is the issue at Hawking and loving it to death for sure. And if you go into the main, you know, the top five state parks, you've got that issue. But um, there are other areas that you can go, and um, Clear Creek. Metro Park is thousands of acres in size and just north it's in the Hocking Hills region it's just north of the of the big state parks run beautifully run by um by Franklin County Metro Park which is the Columbus Park system and beautiful trails not too crowded and if you go during the week you'll probably be hiking all by yourself um if you go to a place like Highlands Nature Sanctuary which is the first place we put together at 3000 acres it's um there's not a place that you, you can go any of our trails during the week and you can hike alone. So that, that wonderful feeling of not dominating the landscape with our species, but, but being a subtle, you know, footprint in the forest can still, can still happen, even in places like Ohio and Indiana. What we have here, our biggest problem is, is promoting what we have, because one of the biggest things the East has but the West is not, is incredibly high aquatic biodiversity. Um, we'll have over 300 mussels um, potentially in the creeks in the Eastern United States. And you, you can count them on your two hands in, in Western United States. Mm. Um, we have uh, the highest density of crayfish species in the world <laughs> in Eastern United States. Snails, in the, you know, you think water, and think what water grows in soils and in aquatics. And that's what we have in the East. Incredible firefly spectacles, um, all kinds of fish spectacles. Some of those beautiful darters imaginable. And if you look at numbers, you look at salamanders, they need water too. Amphibians, anything that needs water, we've got it. And boy, did that hit home this year with all the forest fires in the West. We don't have that issue west of the Appalachians in this, in this rich, wet, area that's filled with ravines and water. We just bought, for instance, um, we were acquired would be the better word, a, a beautiful 750 acre property um, near the Ohio River. Um, and in that 750 acres, which seems like nothing from a Western viewpoint, you know, when there's, there might be talking square miles when they pick up a ranch, but in that 750 acres, we picked up eight miles of waterways. So, I'm not saying that to say the East is better than the West or Ohio is better than another state. It, I don't think of it that way. I think of every single area, region in the United States and in the world as having its own sacredness, its own life expression, its own signature of of nature's palettes in terms of species. I think one of the things I'm picking up here is is that you could you know, you could just kind of make a marker on water and the water just seems to stack biodiversity up a lot higher in a lot smaller spaces than, exactly. you know, an, an equivalent place out West would need to be 
thousands and thousands of acres more to to do the same thing in terms of if you're looking at biodiversity and you're just looking at just aquatic species, you know, you're just not going to have a lot of conversations about water out West unless it's the lack of it, you know? Well, you take something non-charismatic like a stonefly. We have more species of stoneflies in our creeks than anywhere else, anywhere else in the world. Um, So the issue with the East is not so much, it's not biodiversity incredibly high biodiversity. The issue is they're not charismatic animals. And so people have to learn about it to get it. And they have to learn a little deeply to be odd. Um, And that's what we try to do with the ARC. We do do a lot of education and we are trying to, uh, we have a little slogan. We say home sweet biome. And we're trying to make the point that the Eastern deciduous forest is a biome. It is part of the, of the temperate deciduous forest biome, which is one of the most disturbed biomes in the world. And if you wanted to go and find that biome, you're going to go to Eastern Asia. You're going to go to Europe and parts of Russia, and you're going to go into Eastern United States. That's pretty much it. I'm going to skip the, the Southern Hemisphere for the moment because... That's not really quite fair, but it's, it's quite a different forest down there, and, and there's not much land. It's mostly ocean in that in those particular latitudes. So if you really want to find the temperate broadleaf forest in the world, those are the three places you're going to go. Well, China went down thousands of years ago with agriculture. Ours only came down a couple hundred years. Europe went down thousands of years ago with agriculture, and before that, it got swept in with do incredibly low biodiversity because the glacier pushed up against the mountain chains, couldn't get across them. And so biodiversity got caught in the middle and just flickered out. But here in the east, our mountains run north and south. So when the glacier came down, our stuff just retreated south and then retreated back north again, or not retreated, you know, expanded back north again. So our biodiversity is way higher than Europe, extremely higher than Europe, not even countable. one little fun example. If you go into England, which of course was scoured by the glaciers, you might find one or two oak trees species. In eastern United States, we have 80 some. So just, just a small example. They don't have, Europe doesn't know what a hickory is or sassafras. Um, they don't have flowering dogwood. There's all kinds of trees they've never even heard of and, and, and therefore didn't appreciate when they hit our shores, um, you know, when not my ancestors, I guess. Um, China does have that diversity, but it's highly restricted to the mountainsides because everything else has just had centuries, literally many more centuries of um, human domination than eastern United States. So if you want to save the best of the temperate broadleaf forest, where would you go in the world? You're going to go to southern Ohio, a little bit of Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and a little northeast hub of Kentucky and then Smoky Mountains. You know, running down into the Smokies, that little tiny corridor. That's it. That's it for the world of where you can get it for a decent price and still get a lot of biodiversity bucks for your dollar. So, you know, it's all about looking at scale and erasing those state lines to really get why the East is so important. I love to have new ways to appreciate things. I thought I already appreciated a lot. And the way that you went around the world and and really, that's a great way to showcase how special the land, the area that you work in is. And 
I can't believe I'm three hours away from from it or less in some cases. <laughs> well, less probably if you hit us first. I'm, I'm trying to talk you into a visit to the Highlands Nature Sanctuary. We have a museum. And instead of using that museum to interpret the Rocky Fort Gorge, which it sits right on the edge of and looks down into, instead we decided if we've got this square feet, let's interpret the biome. So we, the whole museum interprets the entire biome from a world perspective, and, and um, it's, it's beautiful. And what we did is we brought in really fantastic artists who made four-by-eight-foot murals, taking the forest back to its early origins, watching this forest be able to witness the evolution and uprising of the age of mammals and then continuing till today. Um, so it is an ancient forest. It's not as ancient as the redwoods and the ginkgo trees, but it is an ancient forest. It's been around for a long time and it's, it's seen a lot in its day and it's worth protecting. The biggest reason we do not protect the Eastern or not the Eastern, but the temperate forest biome in Europe, in China, in East United States, it's exactly the same places as the high population. It's exactly the same places where we have domesticated most of the foods that we eat today. And so we're right up head to head with agriculture um, and, and, and industrial centers. Um, it is interesting, and we have this map where if you place the high population densities areas of the world, and you will find most of them are in the temperate broadleaf forest biome. And so, ergo the problem. Oh. And um, what I like to think of in our job is, is that a problem or can we turn that into a plus? And so, in our area, we're turning it into a plus because that's a lot more people we can fundraise with. There's a lot more people who have the potential to care. And people are much more likely to put money into preservation in their so-called backyard than they will. And, and I'm not saying they should do this, but they just do. They're much more easy to motivate if it's something they can see in their backyard as opposed to, you know, Africa or South America. Is this a place they can visit or they can see pictures or they can see that there's guided tours? It's more believable. It's more tangible. And people in Ohio have been extremely generous in funding this mission that we have. Well, you guys, I mean, you have an area that sort of speaks for itself if you can get people, push them there a little bit. Like they get a little bit of an experience right. of that. And then all of a sudden, like me, have a lot more appreciation for an area that took for granted. Um, mm -hmm, what do you guys mm -hmm, do mm -hmm. in terms of education to tie all this stuff up? You're a brilliant spokesperson for this. Do you go out and, and, um, and talk about the region the way that you talk about individual areas and get people excited about it in that way? I don't get to because there is so much work to do that if I get on the road, um, I just, I can't do it effectively. You know, mm -hmm. as much as I'd love to talk to people one-on-one, -on -one, it's not the most effective way to work in the 21st century. So our, our backbone of our public connection is we print a magazine. And that magazine um, is a major month-long production um, each fall. It comes out in the early winter. This one was 60 pages long last time. And we bring together brilliant photographers, um, sometimes actually artists as well. And we write articles about the land, and we bring that land to life. We have tons of maps. Um, and so by the time you're finished reading that article, you know as much, almost as much, as our board members do. It's like you're you're on the inside. 
you know, you're an insider, you know exactly what we're up against, you know what it looks like, you know what we're trying to save, you know where we need to do healing, and you know the potential for what we can do around that area. And what we have found is if you educate people to that degree, um, then they'll do the rest. People kind of know what they want to do, you know? So all you got to do is tell them what you're doing. And that may not be the majority of people who respond to that, but those who do are passionate. I mean, they're looking for organizations to do this good work on their behalf. So rewarding. And then that magazine is is our voice. It is the voice of the ARC in people's, you know, tables, you know, in their living room. And I would, a lot of times when I uh, visit people, I'm always charmed because I'll go into the bathroom and then I can't tell you how many times our magazine, I will find it next to the toilet. <laughs> and that may sound not, not so nice, but I'm so charmed. I'm like, yes. <laughs> It's like, this is reading material you don't throw away and you look at over and over again and you savor the pictures. And I'm like, okay, we, we succeeded. <laughs> um, you know, we don't want something to hit the mail and end up in the wastebasket. You know, it has to be, it, it, it has to speak to people's hearts. Wild Earth, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a spring chicken. I'm 66. And um, when I was in my younger years, um, I got the Wilders magazine and I was completely enchanted with it. And it, I know this sounds a little esoteric, but even if I didn't read the articles and I just skimmed through the pages and looked at the pictures and just felt what it stood for, it, 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 it just sang to my heart. And so I am sure I'm absolutely sure with, without it, with, with no uncertainty that the fact that we have this magazine and that it is the center of our fundraising effort and our communication um, media uh, for our donors is because of that Wilder's influence. And when it did, and when it did shut down and it was no longer being printed, um, I think that vacancy was felt in my heart as well. And I think a lot about, um, I think a lot about life and death. I mean, how can you not when you're dealing with nature? It's in your face every day. And 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 you're dealing I lost my husband um a year and a half ago. You know, we all have to deal with death at, at some level. <laughs> Whether we're saving nature or or working mm. with our human relationships. And um in meditating about death, I've come to the conclusion that we never really die. We just merge merge our impact continues on for better or for worse sometimes it's a horrible impact but if it's positive that's even better but in any case they both work whatever the the scale of the positivity of our lives what appears to die just reawakens in another form and so although wild earth is not being printed this magazine is And what other magazines are out there or, or the feeling of the importance of wildlands, you know, corridor that was so well promoted in that magazine, who knows what that has birthed? Um, You know, things just keep on rolling. So we are an incarnation of wild earth in some ways. Uh, If you're near a computer or you just want to see this later, uh, archofappalachia.org slash preserves, or you could just hit the link as you get to archofappalachia.org. Uh, Arc preserves, and that I've just been staring at your map this whole time. So that I, as we're talking, mm-hmm. I'm thinking, oh, I want to go there. That's a really neat name. I wonder what that mm-hmm. means. <laughs> but you can get some sense. Mm-hmm. And I love that you don't have the state lines on there. At least they're not very visible at all. 
uh, because that really right. just goes back to what the, the way that you and the way that we all should be looking at these uh, regions that we fight for, that we are so interested in, is should just be based on the biology because that's really our purpose. If we're thinking too much about anything else, um, there might be people in our organizations that are really legislatively based and they have to think about, well, this is how we'd have to do it in Kentucky, but this is how we can do it in Ohio under a completely different set of state regulations. And you'd have to consider it that way if that's the job you had in the organization. But for the rest of us, to have the map the way you do and the way that we typically see uh, rewilding style maps of con connectivity and buffers and things, they really do. I love it because they they leave the state lines out. And this is what mm -hmm. nature mm -hmm. needs on the ground. And it doesn't care if it's in Kentucky. Well, we have a wonderful, we have a wonderful advantage of working in Ohio. And one of that advantage is in this area that I do my work and I live, I am in the center of one of the most, most amazing fluorescence, artistic fluorescences of culture that has ever occurred on our continent. And that was the Hopewell culture, which was just roughly mm. 2000 years ago. In Ohio, and almost only in Ohio, and only in Southern Ohio, they built massive complexes of promenades and um, mounds and earthen walls running miles and miles. And um, in some cases covering ground with earthen architecture a couple of square miles for, for one complex. And because it was earth and not stone, it's been slow to get the recognition of other cultures in the world. But it is finally starting to get its day and people are realizing, and these people, we've lost all their wood art, what we, which must have been amazing. But what we do have is their stone art. And, and what we know about this culture is it was fairly um, peaceful time to be alive in eastern North America. They could travel with impunity and did. And I like to think of, you know, young people are always more adventuresome than older for good reasons. Um, <laughs> they, can take, they can take the stress of the travel better for one. But they thought nothing. They, well, I shouldn't say they thought nothing, but they did it. They would go out to the Smoky Mountains and, and, and bring back um, uh, black obsidian. Um, I said Smokies. I didn't mean it. They would go out to Yellowstone and bring back black obsidian. They would go down to the Smoky Mountains and bring back mica. They would go all the way up to what we call Michigan today and come back with copper. And they weren't trading. They were going and getting it and bringing it back. Hmm. Um, and so they uh, and they they would bring all kinds of interesting um, stone resources to make gorgeous animals gorgeous. They had pipes made out of stone that were of all kinds of animals, not just the charismatic. You know, they would have beaver and turtles and toads. And so it's like the Ark of Ohio was embedded in their art. I'm like almost, I don't know of any other culture in the world that has done this. I've done it with indigenous animals. You can go into the Mongolian culture and see gorgeous art on, the, on their horses. But is there any other culture in the world that said, we love our wildlife and we're going to put them in our art. So here's Eastern American fauna in the pipes, um, smoking pipes for ceremony that are buried in the ground. And um, we have, of these 36, our organization has bought and saved 
four of them. Many of them, of course, are all gone. You know, they've been plowed to oblivion and broken up and had cities built on them. So the fact that we could even save four of them is pretty amazing. But the reason I was telling you about this, this element of what we do is that their view of the world is a reminder of the view that we need to bring back to our consciousness. Exactly what you just said. You know, they looked at a river and they said, where did it go? There were no state lines. It was, it, you know, they, they would stop when they reached as far as they could go and still make it back home. Our two biggest fundraising events of our 23-year career were both when we were buying earthworks surrounded by natural areas. So they were all fairly large acreage um, off the auction block that contained um, earth comp you know or, or, or the, the mounds and, and and the earthen walls of these old complexes so yeah people love it the ones left in ohio many of them are not card carrying american indians but if you go into a classroom in chillicothe ohio which is not too far from where i'm talking right now uh, near the center of the state and you're talking to a bunch of fourth graders and you say well how many of you have american indians in your in your ancestry and a third of the hands will come up mm. Now, they may not be able to prove it, <laughs> but that's what their families are telling them. Yeah. So some of it's got to be true. So uh, I think a lot of what is happening here in Ohio is somewhat connected to the land on which we stand. And maybe some of the land preservation interest is coming out of our blood. Who knows? I don't know. Yeah. But I do know that we very much honor the people who came before us. Um, we don't want to usurp their culture. We don't want to speak for them. But boy, do we know that they came before us. And we try to tap in a little bit to, you know, to, to what they did on the land and the animals that they connected with and try to imagine how they interacted with this beautiful force that we still have remnants of. And it's, it's inspiring. You know, they've been, they were in Ohio for 16,000 years. And the European immigrants have been in, in Ohio for a little over 200. You were talking about the non-charismatic fauna. It seems like it's beginning to change. People are starting to care about things on a, on, a, on a deeper level than they ever have. And we're starting to talk about that. I mean, it started with bees, and that's been going on for quite mm -hmm. a while. But, yeah, mm -hmm, all these mm -hmm. studies that are coming out about the radical decline in, in just bug populations period is right. it's getting around and people are starting to take note the last three years we've done a i guess you call it a workshop or a course in um firefly identification because fireflies are we have them in the west but not not very much not much diversity here in the east we have uh high di diversity and we have some amazing spectacles um and that's a really easy one for people to get into and that's just why we offer that course we go out at night and actually start figuring out what species are what and when you start learning them by the species you can't believe how fun it is like instead of this sort of indistinct firefly you know show that you drive by and don't think too much about when you get out in the woods and you realize here's a little tiny thing i mean so little you know like it looks like three-eighths of an inch long or something and masses of them all twinkling and they look like little twinkling christmas trees but then here's this really big one doing like this like a chain of fire going across the sky and and maybe flashing for you know a couple seconds which is a long time 
yeah. compared to the, the little twinkles. Um, and you find that they're predatory fireflies eating the other fireflies. It just gets incredibly exciting. Um, and I think that is a real sort of metaphor for, for, for what it is like to do Eastern conservation. You got, you got to learn. It's not an antelope, you know, running across your vision that you can catch in a second and kind of grasp it. You know, you have to go out and study. And, yeah. and so it is, it's a hard, it's a, it is harder. It is harder, I think, to, um, to fundraise to the uneducated um, supporter, um, but definitely worthwhile doing. Yeah, I remember driving back home for holidays and things from Albuquerque uh, to Indiana, and there was a certain line you'd always cross, depending on the time of year. But of course, in the fall, early fall and the spring, that was when I realized that the color green actually had a very distinct smell. Green has a smell. And as soon as you get back to the waterlands, which is what this mm-hmm. is, you, you can roll your window down, especially if you've been going for a while and you haven't had your window down and you let it all in in a whoosh, you go yeah. home. You, 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 the, the sense of homeness is really, really, really big. And uh, fireflies. And I grew up here and they were just, you know, just that's fireflies. I never paid attention to them the way I did when I moved away and lived in the desert and then came back. And it blew my mind every single time that I was surprised that these things exist, that they even exist and do what they do. Fireflies are just in the east and you're sucking in air. You're sucking in pollen and spider webs and little bits of Flies, you know, I mean, like our, our air in the East is filled with stuff. It's filled mm-hmm. with stuff. Uh, and of course, that's why people have so many allergies. But it's, it's just a very vernal place. It's a very life drenched place. Not as much as the rainforest, but that's the next place to go, right? You know, you want yeah. more biodiversity? Then take the same forest and let it run 12 months a year instead of, you know, seven. Oh, and now, now you've got the rainforest, but it's, it's, it's a type of rainforest. And in the summer, it is a rainforest. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's an exciting place to work for sure. And um, I thank you so much for giving me this time to talk about it. Thank you so much. We're going to be talking to you again, I can tell. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.